Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where we will be talking about more than words, interpersonal communication, and well-being. My first guest is Professor Corey Floyd, who is a professor of communication and a professor of psychology at the University of Arizona. Corey's research focuses on the communication of affection in close relationships and how it helps individuals manage their mental, physical, and relational health. Welcome, Corey. Thanks for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate you having me. Well, I, 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 if anybody could see, I'm doing like a big virtual hug of air to Corey because I so appreciate him and the subject we're going to talk about because connection and affection is where it's at for our health in so many ways. Huh, Corey? I will take that virtual hug. Yes, yeah, you are absolutely right. And it's especially true these days when so many of us are feeling that residual sense of isolation coming out of this pandemic. Yeah. And as we watch images, those of us who are paying attention to the news and we see what is going on in other parts of the world, right now we're looking at news of Ukraine. We still have ongoing news of Afghanistan. We have this, I don't know, for me, I have this deep empathy for these people that I don't even know, and yet they feel they're part of the tribe, you know? It feels like they're family, yeah. I think that's just this sense of empathy that we have when we see other people suffering and recognize that that could be us and that we could be the ones in need of that empathy and, and reaching out for support. And so it really does, strangely enough, bring people closer together. And that taps into this fundamental need to belong, to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. That's right. That's right. And you know, it's not a coincidence that we call it a need to belong instead of something like a preference. Uh, many people would put that need for connection and that need for relationships alongside many other quite fundamental human needs, such as our need for sleep or our need for food. And one of the reasons that that's true, is that when that need is unmet, we suffer, and we suffer in a number of different ways. You know, I'm thinking back to these experiments that were performed. I think they were Harry Harlow's experiments with, right. the, with the, the monkeys that were deprived of their mother's touch. You know, if it was touch or food, they always gravitated towards the touch. That's right. And except in those moments when they needed to eat, because that's still a fundamental need. Yes. But as soon as that need was satisfied, uh, they thrived when they were in the presence of that affection, that cuddling and touch. And that was one of the first experiments that really helped us understand 
how fundamental a need that is. And even in children who don't receive that level of touch or cuddling that they need uh, as infants, we see a failure to thrive. Let's talk a little bit about that because as as humans, each of us have different needs or desires in, in terms of physical touch and affection. And I'm not talking about sexuality, just like touching, you know, that some of us prefer to have our hands on our loved ones or be touched by them. And some of us are more adverse to that. Talk a little bit about the importance of touch in terms of emotion regulation, because I think we often don't think about them as being um, related, but they are. One of the things that touch does for us among many is it calms us. It calms our nervous systems in particular when they're aroused, such as they might be when we're feeling stress. And so we've found in our, in our own research, and many others have found the same, that particularly when people are in a state of distress, something like a hug or holding hands or just being proximal with someone else is one of the most effective ways to regulate that arousal that comes with stress and bring a person back to their normal level, uh, what we call their homeostasis. Other things can do that as well, but touch is particularly powerful in its ability to calm us when we're distressed. I read an article many years ago that I have used in my practice since then, and I don't even know if it was a factual article, but it's stuck. And that is that seven second hug because it gives that sort of letdown response in the body where you kind of, you exhale. Mm. And, and seven seconds is a long time, especially if it's somebody you don't know very well. <laughs> that is a long time to hug. Most hugs last between a second and a second and a half. So seven seconds can feel like an eternity. And for many people, as you mentioned before, that would be something that would actually, that could actually be stress inducing. Yes. If someone is not particularly amenable to touch, or if that's a way of interacting that's not comfortable for them, then that level of touch can actually be something that ele that elevates their stress. I often say that we don't all need the same amount of affection in our lives any more than we all need the same amount of sleep, but nobody needs none. Mm -hmm. So it is partly a matter of knowing where our comfort zone is, where our sweet spot is, if you will, with the person that we are interacting with. And when we can reach that, whether it's seven seconds or whether it's three seconds, it really does have that letdown effect. And it is almost as if the stress is literally melting away from our body. Many people describe it in that way. You see it, I think, like when animals curl up, like when a dog or a cat try to find that spot, you know, and they get into mm -hmm. that happy sweet spot and they could be sort of nestled next to you and then they have that shuddered letdown. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, over time, that's a very adaptive response to be able to self-regulate and self-soothe in that way. It does require a certain level of self-awareness. As we talked about before, not everybody is going to want the same level of connection or the same amount of touch in their life. So it's important to know what is optimal for you and what is optimal for the people who are close to you. But once you do know that, then to have that ability to self-soothe is really quite adaptive and functional in the long run. I sometimes say that one of the greatest things about affection in terms of its relationship with well-being is that it doesn't benefit us just when we receive it. 
It also benefits us when we are the giver of the affection, Mm. when we instigate it. So I very often will tell people that when they are feeling distressed or when they're feeling dysregulated, the good news is that you can be proactive. You don't have to wait to receive a hug or, or somebody else reaching out to hold hands with you. You can be the instigator of that behavior. And our research has actually found that we benefit in terms of our health even a little bit more with the affection that we give than with the affection that we receive. I had not heard of that. That is really interesting. And I wonder, have you done any studies about people's feelings and responses during the pandemic when the ability to touch became difficult because we were we were disconnected from one another physically? A number of folks in my discipline have looked at that question. And it's sort of a it's sort of a dual-edged sword going through this pandemic in this time in our history. On the one hand, I've been very grateful for communication technologies just like Skype or Zoom, which we're using right now, FaceTime, things like that, because that has given us the ability to stay connected in ways that we simply wouldn't have been able to 20, 25 years ago going through the same kind of pandemic. But the one thing those technologies have not allowed us to do is reach through the computer screen and hug the other person. So touch is still that sense. It's still that way of connecting that has seemed out of reach for us. And, you know, we, we have our primary, our, our partners and we might have had children in the house and that's been good. I think if we all can say, yes, thank goodness we had our, our pot or our tribe that we could be with, but then there were those people that we couldn't. And if we are very tactile people and we like to touch, I don't know, for me, I felt at a deficit. Like I felt like I was craving the, you know, hugging because it is a way to communicate. It is a way to soothe. And so I see now that the contrast heightens, you know, my awareness of how hard it was in the rearview mirror. I think people like you and me who are huggers yeah. have felt that way, have felt a real sense of dis-ease during this time. And I think early in the pandemic, many people were feeling that sense of dis-ease without necessarily being able to put their finger on why. They may not have realized that it was, oh yes, I'm missing touch. I'm missing the ability to reach out and hug the people who matter to me. But for many of us, we quickly came to that realization that, boy, it's wonderful to be able to talk to folks and to be able to have those connections uh, even on a daily basis with people who are not close by. But, boy, I sure miss holding their hand. I was describing an experience to somebody about three or four months ago. It was when things first started to kind of open up a little bit. And I saw somebody that I knew, but I hadn't really had a lot of contact with and they threw their arms around me and the sensation I had of being terrified and grateful and and happy all at one big ball. It was an incredible feeling like, Oh, should I be doing this? No, don't pull away. You know? (laughs) Yeah. It can be a little bit overwhelming when the kinds of behavior patterns that we're used to enacting with the people that we know Uh, Now we have to renegotiate them. Now, as we approach each other, we might say, are we hugging? Are we shaking hands? What's the rule here? And that's exhausting to have to renegotiate 
ways of interacting that before this time felt so natural, felt so organic. Prior to the pandemic, you probably wouldn't even wouldn't even have been a question whether you would have hugged uh, your friend or not. And now you're feeling really conflicting emotions about it. I think so many of us are sitting in that space right now of sort of limbo with respect to as we as we reemerge uh, into our social lives, what's that going to look like and what do we want it to look like? Yeah. It's kind of like, um, you know, d- dating behavior, right? Reestablishing dati- dating behavior during the height of the AIDS pandemic, it completely reorganized the way we dated and the way we engaged sexually. And this is kind of similar. It's similar in that way. Sure. It's taken what we had experienced sort of for granted, what was familiar to us or organic for us in our interactions with others. And it's thrown a real wrench into yeah. that to now there's so much uncertainty and, and that uncertainty wears on us. That uncertainty produces anxiety about, uh, for example, being in a crowd of people that three years ago we wouldn't have thought twice about, but these days we have to. <laughs> this past Labor Day, I went to a Michael Franti concert and Michael Franti gets everybody dancing for like two hours straight in an, in an outdoor venue. And I look at my partner, I say to him, I think this is a super spreader event, but I don't care. I mean, I really do care. But the fact is, as it was so euphoric and felt so good to be out of the house and dancing that it sort of overtook my caution. Right, right. And I know, I know I'm not alone in this. No, you're not. No, you're not. I think what many of us are realizing right now is that we have to make deliberate decisions. We have to make informed decisions about where our comfort level is going to be. Yeah. And it's easy to think about the risk involved in an interaction like that and think, well, because it's risky to be around other people, then I'm going to choose not to. And and for some people, that's the right decision. But what we often don't think about is the risk of not being social. Yes. Yes. And we're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about the other pandemic the loneliness part, because that's also a fact out there in the world. It is. To learn more about Dr. Corey Floyd, please go to CoreyFloyd.com. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Hang on just a minute here. Before we pause, let's talk about the power of protein for our well-being. I'm a big fan of protein smoothies to support my super active lifestyle. And that's why I'm proud to partner with Ritual, today's episode sponsor. Protein helps us build strong muscles, supports bone health, and helps us feel full after eating. Ritual scientist and nutritionist recommended essential protein is a delicious plant-based protein powder. Ritual offers three thoughtful formulas, each packed with 20 grams of sustainably sourced pea protein designed to meet our body's evolving protein needs. I love Ritual because it's a tasty, quick, and easy routine that helps me get essential nutrients on the go. And Ritual helps me keep all the bad stuff out. It's vegan, gluten, and allergen-free, and free from fillers, colors, and additives. My go-to formula is the Daily Shake for 50+, plus that adds calcium HMB to the mix to help maintain muscle mass and promote healthy aging. Ready to shake up your protein ritual? My listeners get 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash harvesting. Ritual even offers a money-back guarantee if you're not 100% in love. 
Visit ritual.com slash harvesting today for 10% off your first three months. Now let's take that break. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. We're back talking about more than words, interpersonal communication and well-being with my guest, Professor Corey Floyd. Let's get back to it. So, Corey, let's step into the territory of the other pandemic of loneliness, which I think is global. It really is. And it, it has been heightened for so many people in the last couple of years, even people who hadn't really experienced loneliness prior to the pandemic are coming to understand what that feels like now. I think one thing that's true about loneliness is that if you haven't experienced it yourself, at least at any, with any kind of intensity, then it can be an experience that's really easy to dismiss or overlook. And so when you are around people who are suffering from loneliness, often a natural response in that situation is simply to say something like, just get over it. Mm. Or go out and meet people or just do what you need to do to overcome this situation. What they don't realize is that when you are in the grip of loneliness, there's a lot of hopelessness that goes with that. When you're really, truly entrenched in loneliness, it can be very easy to believe that things are never going to get better. I want to ask you to describe loneliness, because there's a difference between feeling alone and feeling lonely. Those are actually quite different things. And I'm glad you brought that up. It can be easy to equate those two and think, well, if I'm alone, let's say I've just moved to a new city and I don't know anybody, or I've started a new job, that if I'm alone, I'm going to be lonely. And conversely, if I can just get out and be with people, then I won't have any feelings of loneliness at all. And that's actually a fallacy. The two are related, but not in any kind of causal way, such that I can be surrounded by people and still feel lonely. And conversely, I can be alone in solitude and not feel lonely one tiny bit. I get it. So, (laughs) so, So the thing to understand about loneliness is that it really is not about our physical proximity to other people. Instead, what loneliness reflects is a discrepancy between the amount of social connection that we feel like we want or need in our lives and the amount that we actually have. And here's where that individual variation in what we need really comes into play. You might be someone who needs a lot of social connection and a lot of social stimulation in your life not to feel lonely, whereas I may be somebody who is perfectly content with one or two close friends, and that's really all I need. So it's a very individual thing, but that means that it isn't automatically remedied if I can just get out and be social. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. In in talking with people through the pandemic and in, in doing a lot of interviews because it was such a fertile time to, to, to record interviews, people would talk about being, and, and I, and I put myself in this category too, the extroverted introvert, you know, somebody who is 
perfectly happy to work on projects and do my thing and then go out into the world and get up some stimulation and connect with people and then come back and do my thing, you know? And I think that for those types of people, that, that separation and isolation probably was okay. But those that really thrive on a lot of human contact and social interaction, that loneliness was compounded. It really was. And, and on the flip side of that, I think uh, many introverts like myself a little bit uh, rejoiced at the idea of some, <laughs> some social isolation because it felt like uh, a, a bit of a break. Yeah. from uh, maybe from the pressure of having to be social. But, you know, that only lasts so long. And at, at, at some point, all of us begin to feel that deficit in social interaction. Some may just have reached that point sooner because they need more social stimulation in their lives. I want to talk about the, the downside of loneliness in terms of how it impacts not only mental health, which is obvious, but how it also impacts physical health and well-being. We often don't think about that. Yeah, we think about yeah. loneliness as something that we feel psychologically or emotionally, and we uh, connect it to experiences like anxiety disorders or, or depressive, uh, depressive symptoms. What we often overlook is that it is actually a physical disorder as well. And so many times uh, it will manifest in things like uh, disordered sleep where we may have a harder time getting to sleep or we may have a harder time staying asleep. Uh, many people when they are lonely will compensate for that feeling with behaviors like overeating or over drinking or abusing substances, not exercising, not doing the things that they would normally do to stay healthy and well. Probably the biggest problem, certainly the most serious problem associated with loneliness is suicide ideation. Mm -hmm. And that that's where that feeling of helplessness uh, and hopelessness really comes into play. Because if I feel intensely lonely and I, and I genuinely believe that it's never going to get better, that I really will never feel like I belong again, then there is a certain logic to the idea that maybe I really wouldn't be missed if I were no longer here. And we know by research that that is one of the key cognitions that instigates suicide ideation, that prompts people to begin thinking about taking their own lives. And there's a very strong correlation between loneliness and people who are thinking about or even actually planning or making attempts to end their lives by suicide. So, you know, it, it, when you think about it in those terms, it makes it a lot harder to dismiss loneliness uh, as something that doesn't really matter because in terms of health and well-being, it's enormously significant. And that is very closely tied, I think, when we have the sensation that we are seen, heard, and understood by someone, which requires that we actually make ourselves known to someone else. Yeah, so there's a, an right. element of risk, you know, of some vulnerability in order to soothe the sense of loneliness. So it can be there, a bind. There is. And, and to complicate it even further, we would logically think that when people feel lonely, they are motivated to get out and be social, that they're motivated to engage in what we call approach behaviors by reestablishing connections with people or making new ones. But the reality is that when people are lonely, somewhat paradoxically, what they actually experience 
is a withdrawal sensation. They are motivated to stay away from other people and to sort of withdraw within themselves to engage in avoidant behaviors rather than approach behaviors. And so it's really easy to see that that very quickly becomes a self-reinforcing spiral, that the lonelier I feel, the more I withdraw, and the more I withdraw, the lonelier I feel, which really complicates uh, exactly what you were describing, which is the fact that we really need somebody to interrupt that cycle for us. And the lesson there is that when we are around people who seem to be lonely, or who are saying that or otherwise communicating that that might be what they're feeling, it's a really helpful thing to intervene. And it may just be an intervention that uh, involves sitting down and visiting with the person, but it's really helpful to do something to try to interrupt that downward spiral. And that's, it's kind of a social responsibility, you know, for us to check in on the people that we care about, you know, it doesn't really require that much and yet it can really do a lot. So many of us have learned that lesson during the pandemic that we needed to check in on people, particularly people who were living alone uh, or didn't have many others in their bubble. Uh, and it is a really, really good lesson. I think in, especially for the folks who are around us, who we can see and talk to and we can maybe be attuned to the psychological state that they're in, if we start to notice symptoms of loneliness, I just think it's really, really important and responsible of, not, of us not to ignore those. I agree. Say, I'm going to take it upon myself to reach out, to check in, because as you said earlier, sometimes that's all it takes is realizing that there's somebody else in the world who cares about us. We're nearly out of time, and I wanted to touch upon something that we don't often talk about, and that is ways to create connection and support somebody who is grieving, somebody who is going through something very, you know, particular and strong, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of some, you know, life event. What are some kind, respectful ways that we can make that connection so we don't appear patronizing or sympathizing that we're empathizing? It's such a great question. And I, I want to start by saying that I think there are particular things to avoid doing when you're interacting with somebody who's grieving. Uh, chief among those is saying something like, I understand how you feel. <laughs> or yeah. saying something like, be strong or feel better. Because those kinds of messages tell the person that it's not okay to feel the way that you do, that I think you need to be in a different headspace right now. And that's just not where, where grieving people are. They're going through a very complicated cognitive and emotional process. So what that creates space for, what would be sort of a to-do list, uh, the, the, the number one uh, item on that list to help somebody who's grieving is to show up for them, is to be there. Uh, very often people are hesitant to do that with somebody who's grieving or even just going through a very difficult time because they feel as though I don't really know what to say to that person and I don't want to say the wrong thing. So to, uh, to be extra cautious, they simply say nothing. They simply ignore the situation, thinking that they're giving the person space or doing good. I think the most important thing that somebody can do is show up and listen. Yeah. You don't need to say much of anything 
But what's so helpful with, with people when they're grieving is to is to feel like they're heard. Yeah. And, you know, I've even said in those kinds of situations where I don't know exactly what to say, but I just want to tell you that when I put myself in your shoes, you know, I, I can see how it how it hurts. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that empathy you were talking about. Yeah. And that's so important to just for a grieving person to know there's somebody else here who sees me, who hears me, and who accepts me in this moment that I'm in. They're not trying to fix me. They're not telling me I should feel differently. They're just sitting with me in my grief. And that is enormously therapeutic. Oh, it's amazing. It's very, very therapeutic. It's like medicine. Yeah, it absolutely is. We are out of time for now, but we have to have more of these conversations because if we could sprinkle the world with word hugs, <laughs> <laughs> it would be a more peaceful place. Agreed. Agreed. Sign me up. Oh, yeah. Me too. Me too. To learn more about Dr. Corey Floyd, please visit CoreyFloyd.com. And that's Corey with a K. Corey, thanks for hanging out with me. It's been a delight. I really appreciate you having me. Me too. We're going to take a pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Continuing the conversation about more than words, interpersonal communication, and your well-being. My next guest is Professor Valerie Manusov. She is in the Department of Communication at the University of Washington. She has studied interpersonal communication generally and nonverbal communication specifically for almost 40 years. Professor Manusoff is the co-editor of the Sage Handbook of Nonverbal Communication, and she's in the house talking about what's said and unsaid. Valerie, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, this is a juicy topic because around my house, we talk about tone and attitude as being part of the communication structure. <laughs> and um, while we giggle, there's a lot to that, right? There is, absolutely. Talk a little bit about how we build and maintain connection in our relationships through our communication styles. Sure. That, um, there's so much to that question. And specifically about nonverbal communication, though, it's also about talk. Uh, so, so many aspects of interpersonal communication are involved. You know, we think oftentimes about interpersonal communication as just how we talk to other people one-on-one, face-to-face or online. But the process of doing that, the process of communicating also builds relationships and destroys relationships. So it's a sort of integral a part of connecting to other people, even sometimes in the smallest moment, if you're talking to a barista or someone in the grocery store, you can still have these moments of connection if your communication is more sort of clearly directed toward the other person where you feel like you're really listening carefully, asking questions that you really want to know the answers to. When people ask you questions, providing authentic answers to those questions and really staying present and engaged in that moment. So you can have these kind of connections 
with people very randomly, people you may never see again, but the people in your life in particular, that's what really, where it really matters. So it's an ongoing process, something people have to do pretty much every day to stay connected to each other. So once you are connected, it doesn't mean you're going to stay connected until, unless you're really continuing to use some of these processes. So you're home with your kids and you're making dinner and your kids are, are sort of talking to each other and at you and you're not really paying that much attention. You're just sort of telling them to set the table. That's not a very connected moment. Um, instead, you might invite them to come over and, and cook with you, ask them about their day, really listen to what they're saying, look toward them to make sure that they understand that you're that you're being uh, that you're listening to them, that they're heard, um, and inviting them to sort of model that same behavior with you, so that they know what it feels like to really be connected and really be present with somebody else. Let's talk a little bit about how that translates to different modalities, right? For the past couple of years, we've been really challenged to maintain these kinds of intimate connections when we're living our lives, you know, on a screen, you know, in many mm-hmm. cases, and yet. In, in, in my experience, I feel that with intention, right, with sort of a mindful approach to this, you can still have that through a Zoom call, through an email or a text exchange. But what is the secret sauce? Like, what is the texture that makes that so? That's a wonderful question. I oftentimes talk about any kind of technological communication as not inherently good or bad, but it absolutely provides affordances for us. And I think during this period of time, sometimes we think about too many Zoom meetings as exhausting, but it's also an opportunity to connect to people that we haven't connected to before. I I have a number of first cousins and we had a first cousins gathering and we hadn't seen each other or had the chance to see each other for some years and we wouldn't have actually set that up face to face. So the, the technology allows us actually to reach out and connect to other people. At the same time, it can also be really tiring. So sort of the secret sauce, I think, is to make sure that you take breaks in between, that you sort of get yourself ready for them. And then when you're in those meetings or in those um, uh, Skype calls with someone, that you really are looking at them. Um, and, and actually, the technology kind of creates that opportunity because we're we're clearly closer to each other. We can see each other really well. And making sure that you sort of uh, kind of perform that you are really there for them. Um, sometimes people forget, certainly students in classes, they might be lounging on their couches while they're <laughs> in class. Um, and the teachers really would like it very much if they were sort of sitting a little bit closer and looking like they're paying attention. So I think part of it is is kind of going to the extra effort to make sure that somebody knows that you're looking at them, that you're responding to them. Sometimes I think people forget in the online space that things like back channels, like mm-hmm or nodding your head, show your engagement. And we don't necessarily do that very much. We also can get distracted sometimes by our own picture. So trying to make sure to look at, at the images of the people we're talking to more than looking at ourselves as we're talking to them. That's a fascinating thing because in, in normal interpersonal or face-to-face interpersonal communication, we don't normally get a chance to actually see how we come across. And that has some benefits that we can see that a little bit more and maybe kind of up our game a bit to make sure that we're looking as engaged uh, as we as we really are or to actually become more engaged to realize that this is a brief moment that we have with them but so we want to put all of our effort into it and then take some time away from it to kind of relax and have some solitude so that you're re-engaged for the next time 
talk a little bit about those back channels you just mentioned, the nod, the mm-hmm, um, because I, th- these are the subtle parts of communication that probably are more powerful in forming the connection than the words themselves. I think oftentimes, yes. I mean, certainly what you talk about can matter, but you can have a very basic how is your day kind of conversation where you're not really saying very much, but it's sort of, you're right, it's how you're saying it and how engaged you are. So back channels are things that listeners do when they're not the person who's speaking. So in a regular conversation, really similar to what we're having now, people take the what's called the speaking floor or the conversational turn. That's the time that they're speaking. They still use nonverbal cues in that, obviously, their vocal tones, their facial expressions, their gestures. But when a person is the pri- in the primary role of listener, their behaviors are really important, too. So primarily to let the other person know that they are actually listening to them, that they're understanding them or not. So our, our nonverbal cues in response can have like a facial expression that looks like we don't quite understand something. And that lets the other person know that they need to fill in some additional information. Or we can show that we really agree with them and that can encourage them to talk more about that. So how we engage as a listener through our facial expressions and through the vocalic cues that we use, like saying, "aha" uh-huh, or hmm, those kinds of things really are important for the continuation of the conversation. It can also let the person know when we're ready to speak it's the way that we negotiate kind of taking turns in conversation, but we all kind of know someone that's in our life. Who's a really, really good listener. And we probably know someone who's who we think of as not a good listener. (laughs) And a part of that may be that both of them might be actually hearing the things and understanding what we're saying in the same way, but it's really how they're responding to us. Are they asking us kind of follow-up questions? Are they sort of probing the things that we're saying? Did did their responses show that they're understanding what we're saying, even if they're disagreeing with us? Those kinds of things are really, really important for someone to feel like um, they're being heard. The listening process, I want to touch upon that for a minute, because I remember when I was in graduate school that we spent a lot of time on learning listening, you know, Mm -hmm. really the art of listening, you know, from body language to follow-up, questions when it was our turn to, to, to speak. I mean, it really taught me about listening is as important in being an effective communicator as being the one who's the speaker or the storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in terms of connecting to other people, it may even be more important because people want to be around someone that that seems to want to be around them and seems to think that they're interesting or seems to care about them. And we show all of that potentially through our listening behavior. Let's talk a little bit about the role of body language, like sort of like cue number one or rule number one, don't cross your arms kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really funny thing. Having studied this for a long time, um, there's a part of me that wants to be able to give people a really clear list of things to do and not to do. But I, I really can't do that because so much of it depends on context. But I think something like crossing your arms is interesting. I often talk to my students about this on the first day and and I cross my arms and I ask them to tell me what that means. And there's probably about 20 different things that it could mean. Uh, It could mean that I'm angry at them or I'm a closed off person or I'm covering a spot on my shirt or I'm cold or I'm psychologically protecting myself or, you know, there's so many different things that it could mean. And 
And so it's hard to know how someone else is going to predict our behavior or how they're going to respond to it and interpret it. Um, so in that sense, you know, that, that while there are some things that we could think about, uh, and particularly how we want to come across, and so something like that, if we don't want to come across as sort of cold or aloof or angry, we certainly want to, want to think about our behaviors and how they might typically come across to other people. But there's so much variation and it can be understood so differently depending on what we're saying and the context that we're in. So clearly, if it's a really cold room and we're crossing our arms, it probably wouldn't be perceived as problematic. But I guess um, sort of what I generally talk about is the idea that we can't necessarily, we, we, especially when we're the ones seeing somebody else's or hearing someone else's behaviors, we ought not to, to jump to a conclusion that we absolutely know what they mean because behaviors are known as polysonous. That is that they can have many different meanings, all legitimate meanings in our way of understanding behavior. Um, and so if we think, oh, that person is mad at me and we only look at that their crossing of the arms and we don't think about anything in the context or other things that it might mean or how much we're bringing our own history in to mm. how we're interpreting the behavior um, we we oftentimes i think that's the biggest source of a miscommunication between people and and really can lead to a lot of conflict so i would absolutely say that as, as sort of the person who's enacting the behaviors, you want to think a little bit about how someone else might perceive you. I generally try to tell people, though, the most important thing is to be authentic and also to kind of look for the other person's cues, um, especially their facial cues. If they seem to be responding in some sort of way that's not how we wanted them to, to ask them about it. Say, oh, you look like you're a little bit unhappy with what I just said or, or you know, and then it provides an opportunity for conversation. But it's really, even though there are many, many lists of sort of the top five, 10 or 10 things to do or not to do, I think it's more complicated than that. I think the better thing is, is kind of increasing our sensitivity, both in terms of what our own behaviors might suggest to other people and this idea of not jumping to conclusions that we absolutely think we know what someone else means or what we're learning about someone else's personality through their nonverbal cues. Let's take a pause. And when we come back, we will explore more with Professor Valerie Manyasov. To learn more, please check her out at the University of Washington. And also, she is the co-editor of the Sage Handbook of Nonverbal Communication. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. back. 
continuing the conversation with Professor Valerie Manusov. We're talking about more than words, interpersonal communication, and your well-being. Let's get back to it. As you were speaking in the prior segment, I wrote down four things, and I don't know if they are the right terms in your world, but the idea of asking open-ended questions, the idea of reflecting or paraphrasing or perception checking with the other person to make sure they're getting what we're trying to say. And then this notion of building connection and alliance with the other person, even if we don't necessarily agree with them, finding like the Venn diagram, you know, the finding the way in. Mm-hmm. Gosh, all three of those, I can spend the next 12 minutes talking about <laughs> each a part of each one of them, but I'll, I'll try to do a quick one. I think I'm going to start with the third one because I think that's so relevant at this particular time and so difficult to do. One of the things I often talk, try to encourage my students to do is to remember that we are all human beings. And first and foremost, a, another person's humanity matters the most. And when I think, I think when we think about each other in terms of our humanness and not necessarily in terms of our political group or our race group or our, our, our uh, country of origin, we can go into that with the idea of, I wanna learn about this person and I wanna see where we're similar and dissimilar. It's a very, very hard thing to do because there's so much that's getting us to see ourselves as inherently different from another group and it's sometimes kind of in polar opposite and, and even antagonistic to another group, like that group is dangerous to us. And most people are not, certainly some people are, but most people are not. And so the idea of kind of going into in, into our conversations, trying as best as we can to sort of be vulnerable and open with that other person and show who we are with the hope that they'll also show who they are. And one way to do that certainly has to do with the kinds of questions that we ask. And open-ended questions, and especially those that are not leading, can be really, really important. And they sort of say, I, I'm curious about you. I want to know your perspective. And so, you know, when you so you, you ask a very open question that really says, you know, tell me more about um, kind of what you're feeling at the moment or why this is a hard time for you. That sort of thing, and especially said in a kind of empathic way, really can make a big difference. In terms of sort of paraphrasing, I know that that's something that's part of uh, something called active empathic listening. And I also know it's something that uh, psych uh, psychologists get trained in quite a lot too. And I know a couple of people who are really, really good at that. And for me, it also makes me feel very heard. I have a graduate student named Devin, and whenever I say something, she'll come back and say, what I hear you saying is this. And I really enjoy it because I feel like, wow, she really listened to me and she kind of put it in her own understanding. But sometimes paraphrasing can feel a little bit awkward and, and inauthentic. Um, and so I think people have to be really careful. But I absolutely feel like if you pick up on some what someone else says in some kind of way, so say that they've just told you about something, you say, gosh, that experience that you had uh, in your childhood really sounds like it was tough on you. I can imagine how that must be, but can you tell me more about it? That, that I think it acknowledges that they've, what they've been saying, but it also doesn't kind of go into too much detail in, in terms of paraphrasing that a person sort of says, why are you just telling me back what I've just told you? So paraphrasing can work really well, but it is such a skill. It's not something I'm necessarily even very good at. Some people are, but I think the concept behind it 
is that you listened well enough that you understood what they've said and you're able to mirror that in some way in how you respond to the other person. So all of those things really do work potentially to form connection rather than, than to um, exacerbate difference between people. And that's, I think, such an important goal at any moment, but particularly at this moment for us. I want to talk a little bit about conflict and about models of leadership. You and I spoke before we got started with this interview about the president of Ukraine, and it, he is on the world stage, somebody who is modeling a set of skills and a way of being in the world that a lot of people are responding to in terms of leadership and empathy and connection. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, one of the the things that I and, and what's one of one of the really curious things is that what I've seen is that kind of across political groups there is a a strong empathy for him. So even there there isn't a, a the kind of polarization that we're supposed to like one person or another person based on sort of who the spokespeople are in our group. Uh, Zelensky is really getting not universal, but really, really strong amounts of regard and praise for how he has been navigating this whole time. And part of what he's doing is, is he's showing up. I think it's, it was really important that he made the choice not to leave Ukraine, that he is, is in the streets, that he's talking to people. And he does it in this very, what appears to be a very genuine way, that I'm here for you. This country, you mean a lot to me. And it's real. It's heartfelt. Uh, it's who he is and why he's in that position. And that model of a leader is a really wonderful one. It has the potential to change the way in which we think about what good leadership is, what's, what it means to be strong. So strong doesn't have to mean um, bullying and, and um, sort of, you know, puffing out your chest. It can also <laughs> mean showing up and caring and um, and encouraging people to to be their best. And I think that's a lot of what Zelensky has been doing during this time. I, I think he's been fascinating to watch because he is not somebody who is minimizing the risks or the the threats or the possibilities or the inevitabilities that are are, are coming his way. Um, he keeps it real. And, and for me, as the listener and the viewer, I think, well, that's quite remarkable because it's not how leaders usually show up. I agree with that. And, and I also think it's a great model for parenting. So it's so it's easy for us to want to hide stuff from our, our young kids in particular, because the world can be a hard place. At some point, the kids are going to find out about that, and they're not necessarily going to have the tools. They won't have sort of scaffolded their skills to get to the point where they can do that. But certainly with teenagers and young adults, the more you can be authentic about what you your own challenges are or the challenges that are going on in the world, but still providing kind of optimism and a sense of, you know, we're going to do the best that we can with this. I think it's great for a leader rather than saying everything is okay and we're going to win this and it's all going to be wonderful because nothing is ever that straightforward. And I certainly understand the motivation to want to increase morale by saying everything is okay. But I think in the long run, that's not very trustworthy. And what I think Zelensky 
shows is the sense of trustworthiness. And that comes in part from his ability to both be encouraging, but also be honest about the challenges. And, you know, going back to talking about communication style, I think one of the things, as you were speaking, I wrote down the word infantilization. I think mm. that, um, that that is a communication style of leadership at times, and that's a mistake. And in mm-hmm. this case, that's not how this person is approaching his leadership style. Right. Absolutely. And who wants to be treated that way anyway? Yeah. That's a, always a useful thing to think about, too, is would you want to be treated the way that you're treating other people? And if you say yes, that's great. I mean, that means that you're probably doing something right. Uh, But if you say, oh, actually, if I was being called names or yelled at in this way, I'd feel pretty rotten. And it certainly wouldn't motivate me, even if it might might make you as the the person who's doing the yelling kind of feel better or feel like that's what a leader is supposed to do is to demand that people do things. If you realize what it would be like if you were on the other end of it, I think you'd probably change your style. Let's talk about conflict. As you say, conflict, when well done, can bring people closer together. I love this. This is a hard one for me because I was a conflict of order most of my life. In fact, when I, as you mentioned at the start, I've been teaching in this area for a long, long time. And so I would get to the section on conflict in my interpersonal communication classes and I would show them a video of John Gottman's work, which is wonderful. Oh, it is. And then we'd move on to another topic. I did not want to talk about it. But in my older years, I've learned actually to not be afraid of conflict. I think I used to be afraid of what I would find out if I allowed someone to tell me what they really thought. And now I have a more solid footing in my own self and my life that I can hear that. And the wonderful thing is that usually what you hear is less negative than what you think you're going to hear. And so I wish that I had engaged in conflict or or talked to people around things that were conflictual because both I probably could have taken it. It probably wouldn't have been as bad. And relationships would have been able to be maintained because if you don't deal with conflict, relationships tend to fade away. But if we think about conflicts, there's a a great work uh, by John Wellwood, the book where he talks about the razor's edge and the razor's edge is sort of pushing yourself to the limit uh, and conflict allows you to do that sort of the limit of where you are. And it allows you to grow beyond that limit, both as an individual and in a relationship. Again, if you're if you're kind of approaching conflict as let's talk about what's going on for us, no blaming, no shaming, uh, but really just sort of expressing what the concerns are with the idea of trying to work through it and make it better. Or e- even sometimes to say that these things are really tough on, on me that you do. The other person needs to hear that sometimes because otherwise that thing is going to continue to bother you, or you're just going to need to find a way to let go of it. But usually it's best if people can work together on it, but it's a really important thing to learn how to do it. So starting with less important things and finding out what counts as good and even giving each other feedback on how well they handled the conflict can help. But most of us, because there's so many emotions that are often involved in conflict, the worst of us comes out. And we're really looking for someone else to blame. Um, and and in that sense, we again, we lose that person's humanity and forget that they're another human being who's doing their best. So if we approach them in terms of conflict, like 
I just need to express that this is going on for me. And hopefully they can kind of hear that and talk a little bit about maybe why it's happening, what they might be able to do, what they can do together. I think that that helps. But conflict is a tough one. But absolutely, the more you practice it and the more you get feedback on it, the more you listen to yourself, the better you can be. And in getting better, you get the benefits of what you learn about yourself and the relationship and another person through dealing effectively with conflict. And then you ultimately get the gifts of greater connection. I mean, that, yes. is, that being the reward, not even the goal. It's the byproduct of the process. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, and sometimes conflict leads to people realizing either in a romantic relationship or in a family relationship. I know you talked with my colleague, Christina Sharp, about family estrangement. Yes. Sometimes, sometimes relationships have to end, but they can end in more congenial ways, sort of based on an understanding that it's not working, but not with the anger. And conflict can get us to a place where we can say, you know, I, I care about you. I love you. But I think that we're actually better off not being in each other's lives. And that's disconnection, but it's kind of the right kind of disconnection because it allows you to know better who are the kind of people that you want to be in connection with, given especially that connection takes maintenance. It takes, it takes work to, to keep that connection strong. Beautifully said. We are out of time. This has been wonderful. I was hesitant at first to bring up President Zelensky, but I thought, you know what, it's somebody that is, is he so relatable and he's in the media, we can sort of look at him as a third neutral person, to, you know, and not absolutely. necessarily have to pick apart ourselves or our own government. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And we learn so much from watching other people that we've never met before, both in terms of what we want to be like and what we don't want to be like. And at this moment, I think he's really offering so many of us a lot of hope and a wonderful model of how to be an authentic, connected communicator. I agree. Thank you so much, Professor Manusoff. To learn more about Professor Valerie Manusoff, please visit the University of Washington's website and check her and her work out. Thank you, Valerie. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us today on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Professor Corey Floyd and Professor Valerie Manusov, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUURadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.